Because the West, we live in the West, the West is obsessed with identity. Not the East. China is busy, you know, mining minerals in Africa so they can sell it to us for our electric cars, right? China is busy just taking over the world. But to the people in the West, identity is an all-consuming, you can't escape it type of reality, right? You see it everywhere. You see the issues of identity everywhere, right? People identify themselves through different identities. People define themselves in terms of their race. People define themselves in terms of their sexual preferences. People define their identity based upon you know, what gender they are, right? What race they are. It's all very, it's, it's an identity soup. And the different identities are fighting with one another. It's all about identity. Politics, academia, culture, even military, even science, everything is identity, including American Medical Association, American Bar Association, right? All the major corporations in America, everyone is obsessed with identity. But the thing that people base their identities on it's kind of shallow, right? People think what a human being is can be encapsulated into one set of just very narrow qualifications. Um, this, this famous philosopher, Michel Foucault, right? Michel Foucault, who was homosexual, by the way, he thought very odd. He thought it, he thought it very odd. The people base their identity on their sexual orientation. To Foucault, who was homosexual, by the way, defining a human being, like, like summarizing the essence of a human being into their sexual preferences, is very shallow and odd. It doesn't make sense. And I think that's true. Each human being is a set of this amazing, complex set of qualities and characteristics. But to ignore all of it and just say you are based upon the color of your skin, you are based upon your political affiliation, you are based upon how you feel your gender is, you are, I don't know, where you went to school, to narrow the essence of a human being into very narrow set of qualifications is untrue, is shallow, is foolish. But people need to do it. They cannot help but to do it. People need to identify themselves in this way because the Bible says people, people do not give thanks to God. People do not recognize him as God. People do not obey God. People do not fear God. What does this mean? Look, human beings, we're inherently a relational, relational being. We're created to be in a relationship, 
It, it is in our, that's how our soul is designed. That's how our brain is designed. We are created to be in a relationship. We are. Look, we are made in the image of God. The essence of God is a trinity. And in the essence of the trinity is a relationship between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The very God that we were made in the image of, fundamentally, he is a God of relationship. And when he created us, he created us just like him to be in a relationship with him. We are called to orbit around him. Even if you deny he exists, even if you don't, you're an atheist, you cannot escape the desire to orbit your identity on, on some form of relationship. Do you understand? Even if you pluck God out of your mind, there's a drive that we have to define ourselves in relationship to the world, to other people. And the most common way that people do this, apart from God, is to define myself based on these superficial characteristics that's shared by other people. It is nonsense what we do, but we need to do it. People define themselves in various ways. But Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you are a man of God. What does that mean? A man of God means a person who belongs to God. If you are a Christian, you are a person of God. You belong to God. This is different from the belief that God belongs to me. There's a difference between believing that I belong to God and God belongs to me. There's a difference, right? What's the difference? I belong to God means I orbit around God. God belongs to me is God should orbit around me. Do you understand? When Paul calls Timothy, you are a man of God. He's saying, Timothy, you are to orbit around God. Who are the famous Old, Old, Testament, Old Testament figures who are, who are called men of God? There's Moses. There's Samuel. There's David. There's Elisha. Okay? There's this prophet who told the king of Israel, Jehovah, who told the king of Israel that he was sinning? All these people are called the man of God. Let's see what all these people have in common. What, what all these men have in common is they were men whom God removed from the reality, from, from the realm of temporary, transitory, perishing things of the world and place them into God's realm, into his service, into his life. So these people that the Old Testament called the men of God, what, what God did was he took them, plucked them out from the world of the temporary, from the world of the transitory, from the realm of the perishing things of the world, and they plucked them out of that life and put them into his realm, into his life into his calling, and they start 
to orbit around God and not, through the te- not around the temporary things of the world. I'll give you an example of Moses. Moses was almost 80 years old. He was 80 years old when he was shepherding, when he was a shepherd in Midian. He was 80 years old. 80, even though, even back then, was pretty old. He's at the twilight of his life. He was a prince of Egypt for a while. For 40 years, he was a prince of Egypt. And the 40 years now, he's a, he's a shepherd. If you're 80, you pretty much know that's your life, right? But what did God do? He plucks Moses out of the predictable life of a shepherd in Midian. And he places him into his realm, into his plan to deliver the people out of Egypt. Do you understand? Moses was just going his way. God plucks him out of his way and plugs him in into God's realm, into God's purposes. That's the man of God. David, he was the last son of this guy named Zebedee. Zebedee, was it? Jethro? What was Moses' dad's name? Zebedee was John's father's name. What was his name? Jethro. He was this last son of this guy. And David was destined to be just a shepherd of his father's flock. God plucks him out of that life. And God put David into his realm so that David can become king of the kingdom that God himself established in this world. That's the model of the man of God in the Old Testament. Being plucked out of the realm of the temporary, the transitory, the perishing things, and into the realm of God. That's what Timothy is supposed to be. A man of God. You orbit around God now. It's not just Timothy. That's the identity of every Christian. If you confess Christ as your Lord, you are a man of God. You are a woman of God. He plucks you out of the realm of the temporary, the transitory, and the perishing into an eternal realm. Give you an example. So I was listening to the Bible Project podcast. Did you know the Bible Project dude had podcasts? Fantastic. And in this week's Bible Project podcast, that's how you know how to speak in English. This week in the Bible, Bible Project podcast, the Bible Project dudes were interviewing these two guys from Harvard Business School. And these two guys were Josh Corrientes and Greg Balmer. These guys are in their 20s, very smart. John was a petroleum engineer. At the, in, by the time he was like 23, 24, he was making $175,000 a year. Kids, be a petroleum engineer. Highest paid in engineering. Greg was also 23, 24. He was an analyst for a private equity firm. He was making 275 a year. They were both Christians. Raised Christians. And unlike a lot of young people these days, they were faithfully 
tired. They tied their salary. Man, that church, their church must be lucky, right? They were Christians. They knew God. They obeyed God. They tithed. But they had a plan for their lives. Greg wanted to be, John wanted to eventually work for Chevron in the Middle East. If you're a petroleum engineer working for Chevron in the Middle East, they promised him $400,000. You're 24 and you make $400,000. Greg, his private equity firm, promised him a gig that will eventually pay him a million dollars a year. To pursue that dream, these two Christians landed in Harvard Business School. And in Harvard Business School, as they were taking classes from the Harvard Divinity School, God intervened in their dreams. As they were researching, as they were writing papers about God and money, God completely shifted their thinking about money. Before Harvard Business School, before meeting God at Harvard, Harvard Divinity School, they just had their own plan, right? They were going to faithfully tie to the church, they called the tithe a membership fee. They thought, they thought the tithing was a membership fee for the church. They would just pay their membership fee to the church, and they were going to do what they want to do. But in business school, at Harvard of all places, God told John, you're going to go work for the ministry. And that ministry that you're working for is an organization that helps Christians be responsible for their money. They're not going to pay him $400,000 a year. Greg still ended up in private equity, but the money he gained, he just, he just, it's go all in on charity. They had dreams of what their life was supposed to be. Their dreams were orbiting around the transitory, the temporal, the perishing things. God plucked them out of that dream and placed them in his realm, into his world, into his will. And these guys live from, from, that, from that moment on in Harvard Business School, they're living in the realm of God and in the plan of God. Christians, your calling is not to enjoy the transitory, temporary, perishing things, but it's to be placed in the realm that God sends you. So that you will orbit around his will and not yours. Do you understand? This is a very different life from people who believe God belongs to them. The man of God believes they belong to God. Opposite of that is a prosperity gospel. People who belong to the prosperity gospel believe God exists for them. God exists to give them less pain. God exists so that they will experience material blessings. God exists to make your life easy in this world. You see the subtle difference? But how many Christians orbit around God's will and how many Christians want God to orbit around their will? 
Do you belong to God? Or does God belong to you? Man of God, Paul says to Timothy. You're a man of God. And what the man of God is supposed to do is they're supposed to flee and they're supposed to pursue. They have to flee from the wrong things and pursue after the right things. What is the thing that the man of God is supposed to flee from? Man of God, Paul says, flee these things. Verse 11. What does these things mean? What is these things that Timothy is supposed to flee from? It is the love of money. The immediate verses from the immediate verse that comes prior to this verse, Paul discusses the love of money. And Paul is telling Timothy, as a man of God, you should flee from the love of money. Last week's sermon, literal regurgitation. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If you, if you study these words carefully, Jesus is saying there's only really two gods that people worship in this world. God or money. What makes money so alluring, like we said last week, is money seems to offer the, 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 the promises that only God can, offer, can, can ultimately deliver. Money seems to promise you security, satisfaction, glory, love, and control. And money says, I, will give, I can give you security, satisfaction, control, glory, sense of importance through things that you can tangibly touch and measure and, 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 and purchase. Money says, buy these things. Buy this lifestyle. Buy a house in this neighborhood, and you will feel satisfied, you will feel safe, you will feel secure, you will feel important. They offer tangible promises, tangible deliverance, whereas God, promises of God is invisible. We're going to talk about this more about next week. Jesus is it's invisible. Jesus cannot be seen, Paul says. Meaning the promises that Jesus deliver seem is invisible. Jesus offers you security, satisfaction, glory, comfort. But what, he's, what he offers is invisible. Or it seems like it's invisible. Therefore, people say, hot dog. I'm more tempted to be lured by the cert but seemingly more certain things the money can promise rather than pursuing what God promises. But Paul warns the love of money 
leads to all sorts of temptation. The love of money is a trap. The love of money will lead you to evil. The love of money will destroy your life. Even though the money, what money promises seems so flashy and real and good, when you actually pursue after it, it leaves you empty. And that's, tr- that's the truest thing that everyone in the world agrees. Money just leaves you with nothing. The reason why they say Hollywood actors go so crazy after, become, after making it it's because they believed that, what, that, that the fame and riches that they pursue, if they get it, then all the messed up things in their lives will be resolved. But when they actually get there, they realize none of these things that they thought would be the answer to their messed up lives can deliver, including fame and including money. Taylor Swift is a billionaire. You think Taylor Swift's billions can satisfy the longing of our soul. We think they could. We think a billion dollars can, but they cannot. Whereas the promises of God is, even though it's invisible, if you pursue after God, God promises you eternal life. Therefore, Paul tells Timothy, flee from the love of money. Flee from the idolatry of money. Flee from this hope that money can give you more things than you think. Flee from the hope that money can deliver all the answers to your problems. Flee from that misunderstanding. Pursue God. So rather than the love of money, Paul says, pursue these things. What is these things that Paul tells, you, tells Timothy to pursue? Where is that Bible verse? Paul says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness is the way you pursue God. Eugene Peterson I like some of his work. Some of his work, I think, I find it kind of wonky. For example, he's the guy who wrote the Message Bible. Have you read the Message Bible? Right? Jesus is like a cool guy. Hey, you guys, Jesus says, you know, there's a narrow gate and a wide gate, but you got to... He kind of makes the Bible seem very, very simple. So I'm not a really fan of the Message Bible. But there are some certain things that he wrote that is helpful. And one of the things that he wrote, he says this. This is what Eugene Peterson says. He says, It is not difficult in the world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. He says, It's not difficult to make someone interested in the gospel. But it is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people in our culture make a decision for for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. So he's saying millions of people said, I believe in Christ, I will follow Christ. But among those millions of people, there's a terrific attrition rate. And the reason for the attrition is this. He says, religion in our time 
has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attraction site to be made when, when we have adequate leisure. For some, it is a weekly jaunt to church. For others, occasional visit to special services. He says the reason why there's so much attrition rate in the church is that people have a tourist mentality of Christianity. God is someone that you visit once in a while when you have leisure time. God is not something, someone that you pursue. But Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, as a man of God, you need to pursue God. What is a Christian? A Christian is a disciple of Jesus Christ. A disciple means student of Christ. What is a student of Christ supposed to study? The student of Christ is supposed to study about Christ. A Christian is a lifelong, eternal disciple of Christ, where the subject and the object of your study is Jesus Christ. A man of God, a person of God, should devote their lives in the pursuit, in the study, to know who God is. Is And because people don't pursue their lives, in, live off their lives in the pursuit of this objective, that is why their faith is being, being destroyed. How do you pursue after God? You pursue after God first by righteousness. What is righteousness? It means, righteousness simply means it's to have, it's to, it is to, have a right behavior towards God. Righteousness means righteous action, right behavior before God. Do right by God. That's what righteousness means here. You need to act, live in a way that is right with God. That's what it means here. It means live morally, live wisely, live passionately regarding your time, regarding your money, regarding your devotion. You need to act. Righteousness in here means action. You need to take action, Paul says. A lot of Christians are virtue signalers. Virtue signalers believe if I just agree with certain sets of postulates, that makes me righteous. If I agree certain things about God that we believe, that agreement alone makes me a Christian. Yet it's true, in order to be a Christian, you need to confess that Christ is your Savior. But confession without action is dead faith, is no faith at all. Look, there's so many people attracted to big churches. And the number one reason why people are attracted to big churches, right, is that if you go to a big church, no one will ask you to commit. You can attend, you can weakly agree about your faith, and you can leave, and you can leave God alone until the following Sunday. We have tons of Christian virtue singulars. 
if I listen and agree and nod my head. That makes me a Christian. Paul says, no. Righteous acts. Morally, what you do with your time, what you do with your money, how you live your life. Oh, why did I pound? Action. Okay? Pursue God with action. Don't say, I will start my quiet time tomorrow. Start it today. Don't say, I will go, I will serve the church when I retire. Serve the church today. Action. Paul says, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness. Godliness here, godliness here means, as we discussed last week, it means to have a right attitude in response towards the true creator. A preoccupation from the heart with the holy and sacred reality. It is to respect for what is due to God and thus the highest of all virtue. Godliness here means be devoted to God. Increase your awe and respect for God. The purpose of your studies, the purpose of your Bible reading, the purpose of your service, it is so that you will have an increased awe and respect for God. That's what godliness here means. Having this humongous, growing awe of God. Not a small God. Not a God who resembles Santa Claus. Not a God who resembles a psychiatrist. But a God of who is, like Paul says in verse 14, is it? Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Grow in your all of God. That's why the Bible is there. So that you will study. So that you will increase in your great understanding of God. Jen Wilkins is a, is a, I don't know how you describe She's a writer, I suppose. She's a writer for the Gospel Coalition. And she led a woman's seminar, right, for the Gospel Coalition. And I listened to it because, you know, I, I want to know what the female mind is, you know, how it works. And this is what she said. She says, ladies, I, we, I know we have a lot of issues. But what you ladies need most, this is from a lady, by the way. What you ladies need the most is you need to worship God. You need to be in all of him. You need to have an ever-increasing respect for God. He said, Jackie Haley, I think she was a former lesbian activist who met God and who's now serving God. And this is what she said. She said, before I was a Christian, I didn't know God. But the more that I know him, the more I want to serve him. And the more that the other desires of my life starts to fall into the right places. Jane Wilkins, Jackie Haley, what these sisters are telling you, sisters, what you need is a greater, deeper, wider, expansion of the knowledge of the all of God. Make that your pursuit. 
Patas Timothy, be devoted to that. Don't pursue money, pursue that. Paul says, pursue faith. Faith here means not just saving faith. Faith means depend on God for everything. John MacArthur says, faith here means confident trust in God for everything. Loyalty to God, loyalty to the Lord, unwavering confidence in God's power, unwavering confidence in God's purpose, unwavering confidence in God's plan, unwavering confidence in God's provisions, unwavering confidence in God's promise. Faith means be confident in knowing who, who, what, who, that God is who he say he is, and God will give you what he says he will deliver, and God will provide for you, and God will deliver you, and God will lead you. Be utterly dependent on God for everything. That's the faith that Paul talks about here. Do you depend on God for everything? The more I get older, the more important position that I occupy, by the grace of God, I'm more dependent on him. Oh, my gosh. Parents, you got to depend upon the Lord for your kids. Workers, you need to depend upon the Lord for your jobs. You really do. And I'm experiencing that every day. Wives, husbands, you need to depend on the Lord for your relationship. You need to depend on the Lord for everything. I depend on the Lord for my parking. I depend on the Lord for my, for my eyes. I depend on the Lord for everything. And Paul says to Timothy and to all of us, have faith. Depend on God for everything. Grow in faith. Grow in love. Grow in the love, understanding of the love of God. You can grow in your understanding and the experience of the love of God. Did you know that? For so many Christians, my heart breaks because I don't think they know what it means to love God. I don't think they know what it means to know that God loves them. We sing songs about the love of God, but I think many people don't know what that feels like for God to love them. How do you grow in your love for God? How do you grow in your understanding of the love for God? Examine your sins. Study your sins. Get a PhD in your sins. You know what you do? When you sin, and trust me, you will. Rather than blaming someone else for your sins, right, which we're prone to do, just take a moment, retreat somewhere, take a moment, take the sin out, and look at it. Why you did it, how you think that's an affected the person that you sinned against, how that's an affected that person. What does the sin really tell about who you are? How evil the sin is. Look at your sin. And understand it is because of such sins and many, many more that Christ died for you. When you start to examine that, when you become an expert on your sins, and with the knowledge that because of such sins, Christ died for you and forgave you, oh, your love for him will deepen. Your love for God doesn't deepen when you experience miracles. 
guys, I've shared my, I have, I have had my share of miracles in my life. I really have. Unexplicable, unexplainable things is, are constantly happening to me. But I'm here to tell you, those miracles do not deepen my love for Christ. It is in the examination of who I am, in the light of who he is. And in the understanding, despite who I am, he covers me and loves me and calls me his own. That understanding makes me so joyous in him. There's nothing like it in the world. Pursue in growing love for Christ. Pursue steadfastness. Here means patience and suffering. Steadfastness means patience, and patience means long-suffering. He's saying, Timothy, pursue God in your long-sufferings. There are sufferings in people's lives that last decades. There are difficult relationships that last decades. There's a repercussion of sins and the pain from sin that lasts for decades, maybe for the entirety of your life. I have one of those. I have my collection of sins that last for, for a lifetime, or what other people have done, for, done to me. But what I know is in why I walk with Christ through those pains, Christ always reveals his wisdom, his grace, and his truth. And I discover so many things about him and about me through that pain. Paul is telling Timothy, pursue God in your pain. God is not in the business of taking away your pain every day. He is in the business of using your pain to reveal more about him and about you. Pursue after that, Paul says. Pursue after gentleness. Gentleness here means humility. Humility means not self-centered. Constantly live your life where you're centered on God and not on your, not on your interest. Ask God. Pursue a life for you. Ask God on a daily basis. What, have you, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to learn? What do you want me to see? What do you want me to do? That's the life of humility. Do that, Paul says. Don't pursue money. Pursue God, Paul says. And why do you pursue God? It's because when you pursue God, God gives eternal life. Before that, verse 12, Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. Paul is saying pursuing God is not easy. It's not. It's a fight. When you, when you get up tomorrow morning, the last thing you want to do is read the Bible and pray. I, I get that. I know you want to be comfortable on the weekends. And I know after a long, hard day, what you want to do is veg out to your favorite YouTube clips. 
And I know it's a fight. I know what you really want to do is pursue after your own interest rather than, rather than pursue after God. We set a limit for ourselves, right? This is exactly how much I'm going to do for God. Everything else will belong to me. This is how much I'm going to do for God. If it costs me a little bit more to pursue God, I'm not going to do it. Because, as John Bon Jovi said, do you know John Bon Jovi? It's my life. It's now or never. I don't want to live forever. I want to live while I'm still alive because it's my life. This is my life, and I want to enjoy my life, John Bon Jovi says. But Paul says, and not your life, man of God. It's God's life. And if you're living God's life, you need to put the effort. You need to fight your desire to be comfortable, your desire to be self-interested, your desire to be just to be satisfied in your own life. It's a fight. It's a fight to get up tomorrow morning and read the Bible. It's a fight to pray. It's a fight to come to church. It's a fight to go to small group. It's a fight to give your money to the church. It's a fight. But Paul says it's a good fight. It's a worthy fight. Why? Because it is this fight and this fight alone that you will experience eternal life. Look, Paul, when Timothy got baptized, but this is what verse 13 says. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul's talking about Timothy's baptism. When Timothy got baptized, he confessed to God and to before the church that he, he, he has been crucified with Christ, that his sin has died with Christ, and he has been raised with Christ into eternal life. That's the confession that Paul, Timothy made. I have died with Christ, and I have raised with Christ, and as I was raised with Christ, I have eternal life. Eternal life, as you know, doesn't just necessarily mean a long-lasting life. Eternal life is life that you experience as you experience God in your life. It's life unto God. It's a life, it's the fruit of this life that you experience when God is involved in your life. That's eternal life. And Paul is saying, if you fight the good faith, you will experience eternal life. You will experience this regenerating life that God will give you in your, in your life. I'll give you an example. Back to John and Greg. John and Greg, what he did, what they did at Harvard Business School, to, in order to write their paper, they contacted like 300 Christian alumni at the Harvard Business School, right? So three, they got a list of 300 people, and they contacted 300 people, these Christians who went to Harvard Business School. And they took a survey of what some of these people are doing with their money, because Harvard Business School people are madly successful. And there, and there are some people, they were so encouraged by how they lived their lives. One of, the, one of the guys that they interviewed, he's like, he owns his private equity firm. And if he wanted to, he can make $10 million a month. But the guy, the guy purposely does not make $10 million a month. He purposely does not make it. And they go, why? It's because he says, the Bible says, 
the love of money is the root of all evil. And he took that literally. And he says, I don't want to be in that position where I'm going to be tempted by money. So he purposely makes, him not, makes himself not make $10 million a month. And all the money he makes, he gives it away. And they go, why do you do that? Why do you purposely not make yourself rich? And why do you give most of your money away? Why do you do that? And the guy's answer was, it's because I, find, I found the joy in mimicking God through my generosity. God is a generous God. And as I mimic God by giving away my money, I feel the joy of God's generosity. That's spiritual eternal life. The joy that comes from mimicking God. That life that comes from mimicking God, it's more, it gives him more satisfaction than $10 million a month. When you pursue God, there is this life that is coursing through you. There is this unspeakable joy that courses through you. There is this truth that reshapes your orientation, your mind. There is this thing that reorientates your affections. There is this light life. When you pursue after God, this is what he gives to you. Guys, look, it's a cliche that I work a lot. I know, I said it so many times, but my gosh, this week, guys, I was at my limits because the government was about to shut down and I have to get all the things done before the shutdown, right? I was working like 14, 15, 16 hours a day from last Monday until now. I was just chained to my desk. Besides the fact that I had to come to Monday at church, right? Anyway, besides that, I was just chained to my desk. And man, I had my limits yesterday. I was beaten. I was just a corpse. I didn't even jump rope once this week. That's how bad it got. But because I had to preach today, I had to pray, right? I had to pray because I had to preach. So I get on my knees, not my knees, the rocking chair. And I start telling God how faithful he is. I tell, start telling God how, what he'd done for me in this past week. And when I start doing that, oh, guys, the energy. The energy that, that cannot come from 10 Red Bulls or Monster. Oh, the energy the clarity, the freedom, and the joy. Oh, guys, that life. What money can give this to me? What possession, what position, what recognition can give this to me? Eternal life God gives. He really does give it in real ways. And that is why Paul is telling Timothy, pursue God. 
Pursue God. And not money. I have much more things to say, but I'm at time. We'll continue next week. Let's pray. The question we ask ourselves is easy. This is truly what are you pursuing?